Welcome to the National Democratic Institute's Changing the Face of Politics podcast series. In these candid conversations recorded from home, politically active women from around the globe interview each other about the male-dominated world of politics. They're the best examples of why we need to move faster to reach political parity between men and women before the middle of the next century and change the face of politics. In this special Pride Month episode, Governor Kate Brown, Governor of Oregon, interviews Nora Narala, Egyptian LGBTQI activist, about her experience fighting for LGBTQI rights in Egypt and what it takes to lead an effective social justice movement. Hello, welcome to this episode of the Changing the Face of Politics podcast series. My name is Kate Brown and I'm governor of the state of Oregon. June is Pride Month and we are very excited to be featuring Nora Norala as a guest in this episode. Nora is an activist who's been advocating for LGBTQI rights and gender equity in Egypt for the past decade. I am so looking forward to this conversation because Nora, you have taken incredible risks and you are achieving your goals. And I'm just so pleased that you're here for this conversation today. I'm just honored and very happy to be invited and to be here with you and like to share to our listeners like a bit of like what we have in my country. <laughs> well, June is Pride Month and we are celebrating the rights and advances of LGBTQI people around the world. Could you please share with our listeners what your experiences have been like in advocating for LGBTQI rights and gender equity in Egypt? So I, I would say it's a lot of ups and downs, like like everything in life. But I would say like human rights are not treated equally. And this is something that you can really see like through the lenses of uh, how human rights are dealt with in like Middle East in general and in Egypt especially. So for example, like gender equality has started to take off more in the aftermath of 2011 revolution. And that kind of taking off allowed more voices from the women's sector to be heard. This, this kind of hearing, however, was not always like the one that you want to hear. There was a lot of conservative voices. There was a lot of call to go back to the old traditions. There was a lot of pickering between Islamists and like people who are more liberal in their views, if you want to label them like that. But the most important thing that I believe that the LGBTQ movement started to really take off and take its shape in the aftermath of 2011. They learned a lot, like, and this is where it's intersect heavily was like uh, the feminist movement. They did learn a lot and more or less piggybacked on the, the feminist movement in Egypt to achieve their status right now. So I would say like in the last decade, like the queer movement in Egypt did evolve a lot and did manage to establish itself within the human rights entities in Egypt as a force to be reckoned with. But in the end of the day, there was always a problem of funding. And I think funding is like, uh, you, Governor Brown, are also aware of this, like as a politician, also the human rights field is more or less is politics. And in the end of the day, you need to market yourself more or less to international funders in a way that you can get funds to allow your activities to take place. In the end of the day, I think the problem was that international funders really did not 
understand the context in place. So right now, the movement is still there. The movement is growing. The movement is going. There is a sense of solidarity whenever a crackdown happens, whenever a crisis happens. But again, like the international funders agenda and the international observers often miss the point and like misreading the context from the people who are on the ground to realize what they should do to actually support such movements, not, not just through money or just uh, through press statements, because most of the time you actually need more of that. You need a lot of lobbying or like under the table work. And if you don't really know the context that much or you want to ignore the context for publicity reasons or whatever, it can really harm the movement in general. But in the end of the day, I really believe that we, although that our political system right now is more or less a dictatorship, I would say the queer movement and the feminist movement is still thriving and will still continue to thrive. And we're looking forward for, for the future. Right. Could you talk a little bit about what was your motivation for getting involved politically, literally for putting yourself on the line and what your personal connection is to these issues? I am part of the generation that did the revolution, like the 25th of Jan revolution. Like I think people know it, like the Arab Spring. And I don't think anyone in my generation was apolitical, even the ones who imagined themselves to be. Like I believe like in this period of time in Egypt, this was a brief period where we had any sense of free political space for us to express anything that can be viewed as political. For me, like I took part of in the revolution. I took part in the protests. I saw how the government forces attacked us. Uh, I was arrested at some points and so on. So I realized like at some point in 2011 that we are really like missing out like that the political system that we have and the political entities that we have really talks in a bubble, more or less, that we don't talk to the common person. We talk in a bubble, especially the liberal ones, on, uh, on like specific issues that we just talk within our own circles and we don't wanna face the fact that outside of these sector, uh, sectors and like, and our own bubbles, there is not a much echo to what we are saying. So, so I decided that there is a moment now in life that we need to address this issue. And there's a moment now in life to raise awareness about what we're talking about. And even so, like a lot of people see the revolution has failed in the aftermath of 2013, uh, when we had Sisi coming to power and so on. I still believe that the aftermath of the revolution can be felt through the few, really few like entities and few laws and the very few things that we were able to achieve, one of which is, as I said before, the rise and the creation of a strong queer movement that actually services communities through programs of legal aid, through programs of psychiatric services, through HIV testing, and this creation of a parallel uh, civil society that operates away from the government lines and tries to exist in, a, in an atmosphere that does not allow to exist. So in the end of the day, I think that I am political and I think everyone in my generation will be political as well. That's wonderful. I think that's amazing. I want to hear how our listeners can support human rights movements happening across the globe, focused on LGBTQIA and feminist movements. What can those of us who are living in privileged democratic countries, what can we do to support movements like this in countries like Egypt? I would say, first of all, 
please, before you think of supporting anything, please do your research. Go out of your way. Read from local NGOs in these countries. Read reports on these countries. Know what is the context in these countries? What is acceptable to do in these countries? Like, how can you actually help them? Sometimes people think that publicity and media campaigns can help, but like, in a lot of times in a dictatorship, that may just make them more stubborn and like can actually do more harm than use. And sometimes people get like tricked into like these, uh, we call them gongos. Gongos is like a governmental NGO that we have them in Egypt, a lot of them, that they are governmental NGO basically exists just to serve the agenda of the government to wash all of their wrongdoings and like present themselves as like, as this government is doing a lot for its people, is doing a lot to advancement of human rights. So just to begin, like if anyone wants to support any movement anywhere, you need to read on it. You need to read what they are doing. You need to know what the context in this country. It's gonna be a bit of work, some Google search, but you need to do that. So you wouldn't be tricked into believing some false reports on the issue. So you wouldn't do some media campaign that actually harms the population in the country. So you wouldn't donate even for individuals who claim to be activists while they wish to serve their own personal agenda. So there is a lot of panelists here and like people need to understand that like without a context, you're just like not doing enough for the country. And even if you're doing it out of a good heart or a good will, if you just choose to be like, quote unquote, lazy and just pick the first thing that you saw on the internet, that, that's on you here, that you, you did fail to provide your support that you wish to, uh, to support these movements and these human rights because you did not take enough time for yourself and for the movement to read about the context and read about the country you wish to support. Thank you. Um, I, I want to hear from your perspective why you think it's important to have more women and girls engaged in politics and activism. And as well, how do we specifically get more LGBTQ women involved in activism, politics, and leadership? To answer this, we need to first address the issue that, like at least in my country, what kind of politics do we want these uh, individual to be empowered to participate in? Is it a democratic kind of politics or is it a politics that literally exists to serve the agenda of one person and a one, uh, in a one person military dictatorship? Because in the end of the day, like it's important to empower women, to empower queer people, to empower trans women, to empower everyone to participate in politics. But if you don't have the atmosphere of politics, if you don't have the basis of democratic institutes and you don't have the basis of safeguards to pr protect these people of uh, who wish to have more of a, a political participation you're just sending them into a battlefield in world war one and expecting them to survive and that's not not that way that it should be done we should first look how some countries participating in politics were either mean that you sell your beliefs and just work with the government and do whatever they want or be prosecuted and risk your own life and the lives of the ones you, you love for that. So it's not about empowering a group of people. It's about establishing a system that actually allows these people to be empowered out of their free will and not being forced on doing whatever the government wants to do. So without the democratic institution, without a basis uh, to this uh, kind of political, uh, free political atmosphere, I would say, 
the empowerment will fall short. From your perspective, do you think there's a difference in the way women and men lead and engage with others, or is it similar? Well, I, I think politicians more or less like work in the same manner. Like, uh, <laughs> I don't like the gender stereotype of like women uh, being more soft and like being more kind and being more smart because like they listen and like men being more of like like a macho man who will just do what they want. That can be true in some in some aspects. I'm not denying that. But in the end of the day, like as 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 a, as a gender activists who call for the abolishing of gender rules in the society, I cannot agree that like I would I would vote for a woman just because she's a woman. I I can't agree that a woman would do something different just because she's a woman. Like. Like this uh, godly right to rule because of womanhood, I do not believe in. I believe that both of them can work and can serve their communities. But in the end of the day, I believe men have the worst reputation because if you look to the history, most of the rural were men and most of these rurals came from a, a military background. And the military background means that they will be very authoritarian in the and dictatorship in their style of rule. And that's I believe why there's this myth that like a woman can do things better in politics than a man. And the end of the day, a politician have an agenda, a politician have advisor, a politician have a system surrounding them, a support system. And if they follow the support system and do what the people want, they will be successful no matter what gender they are. If they are totally empowered to be successful, right? And achieve and thrive, whether it's economically or socially or culturally. Could you talk a little bit, um, I, I'm assuming that uh, your uh, life as an activist puts you in the public eye, and certainly there might be some surprising things that come as a result of that. What have been the pluses? What have been the minuses? And then I'll ask you about lessons learned. I would say like the public eye makes you turn into an either a diplomat or a politician or a businessman. Like at either like, you always like when you get into the public eye, like you turn into like something of like a, a story, more of an activist, because then you have to do things a certain way. You can't really, you can't really like uh, meet if you're an activist representing a group and then you meet like the funder that you funding you, you can't really tell them that, yeah, your agenda is bad. Like I can't, you shouldn't do that. Like, I, no, you will have to basically just shut it in and just say, yes, yes, yeah. Thank you a lot. You're doing great. And the same way like you do advocacy is the same way I believe you do politics because advocacy is just politics about framed in a way that makes you feel good about yourself because you're a human rights advocate so you're not a politician so you're doing things better for the world so but basically advocacy is just like you have an idea have a product and you're selling it to the person in front of you whether it's a uh, like a politician whether it's a diplomat whether it's an investor you just do that so being in the public eye basically turns you into this representative of your group and means that every step you take is like uh, you're accountable for. The worst thing that comes out of this is the rise of what I call like this weird cancel culture or like uh, the people that just waiting for your mistake so you would be canceled. I don't know this, like I noticed it in the US to be honest, like luckily we don't have it yet. We kind of have it in Egypt, but people like would criticize you even if there is nothing to criticize just because they do not like what you want to say or they think that you're too forward, you're too direct. And like, in the end of the day, they want you to be within the line 
of the group, of the line, of the community, of the line of the NGO that you're working for. And this is something, unfortunately, that I don't like to do and I don't know how to do. So I am always daring and always honest about my opinions. So in the end of the day, I think my, uh, my honesty and directness, I think is very effective. So in the end of the day, you just need to find a balance between like being a diplomat and uh, being an activist. Very well said. Uh, and yes, we do have a bit of a cancel culture here in the United States, I would say. And myself as an elected official, I get concerned about saying something through a press conference that sounds stupid or is wrong and just getting beat up about that. And that's really, really challenging. And I think what people wanna hear, at least in the United States, is that their leaders are authentic um, that they're passionate about the work that they do and that they're trying to do the right thing, right? Yes, and also there is ignoring to the human factor that like we are as human, like we're not perfect. Like I might <laughs> say something by mistake one time, like, but like this crucifixion and like this, like uh, let's go and hunt the person for saying whatever, like really ignoring the fact that we are humans. And like, if it was not intentional, I believe that like, a lot of things can be taken out of context and like uh, the the being cautious really can harm uh, like the statements that you want to present to a to a group of people in the end because you're gonna be too cautious and then the message might get lost so we have over the last year been facing challenges with the covid 19 pandemic and, and i'm curious whether this crisis has influenced or changed your political or strategic viewpoints at all? And has it changed the way you interact with others um, because of social distancing caused by the virus? So I, I think the most remarkable thing that I learned out of COVID that uh, there was a lot of reports about countries using emergency laws to limit rights, to limit rights. And I was like, oh, wow, we have been in emergency laws since for 53 years now. like. No one talks about that. So life, life is unfair. So I learned to share my experience living under the emergency law with my counterparts. So now view these laws as restrictive, which is uh, ironic. Like from my, my side in Egypt, for example, I did not feel any change apart from one month's curfew that we had. And that's it. Like I didn't feel any change in any tone that the government used. They did prosecute some doctors for saying some stuff they didn't want to say, but they did the they did the same style like they used it before. So it's not like COVID came with its own uh, political change in the country, or like uh, prosecution change or undermined human rights in, in any uh, remarkable way. But and, but for me personally, I think the most remarkable thing that. Uh, because the Egyptian police usually targets uh, LGBT individuals from the streets and they arrest them from the streets, the numbers went down because there is no one on the street. And then like, that was the most ironic part that because there is no one on the street, the numbers went down because there is no one to arrest. And that's like, was something very, very ironic for me that COVID brought that upon us that like our numbers of arrests went down. Of course, it opened a, a whole new challenges that none of us saw is the fact that a lot of people live with their families and their families are abusive and like uh, and and really homophobic and transphobic and so on and that really caused a lot of problems and like really opened the discussion about how can you provide a safe haven for queer individuals in a secure way that will not present a danger for yourself and that's an answer that we as a movement yet to answer 
how to provide that in a country like Egypt where everything is literally criminalized? So I am, as an advocate for human rights, I, I am very proud of the work you're doing across your country and the world, frankly. But I'm also curious with your level of dedication and determination, what you do to take care of yourself so you can continue this activism. I must mostly like I, I started to take more care about my mental health, like uh, uh, seeing a specialist and so on. Like before that, like I, I was really bad with it. Like I learned to take time off. I, I learned to go on long hikes, which is not very good for me because I'm not fit. Uh, I learned to listen to poetry and like write about philosophy and like be intellectual of sort of know like stuff like that so i just learned to find a way to write things off of my chest and my head and just try to find this balance between like serving a community and like feeling like emotionally connected to this community and feeling emotionally harmed when someone is harmed and between myself and like try to create a, a sort of a barrier between like being too involved because too involved in this line of work will mean that you will have a heartbreak every five minutes. That's not sustainable. And I do not think anyone should go through a heartbreak every five minutes. So in the end of the day, I believe that every person in my position or like every person who advocates for human rights in a dangerous situation should learn to have a barrier. It doesn't make you less of a, a good person doesn't make you less of a, a good human rights advocate or an activist. It doesn't mean you don't care. It just means that you know what is good for you and you're working on that. Okay. Our next question is about gender equality, inclusion, and democracy, how they all work together in your mind and in your country. I think like the gender equality and inclusion and democracy and like this, I will give the same answer for democracy. The lack of democratic institutes means that this does not exist. But I would like to point out this unique initiatives. It's not even NGOs created by leader in the different sectors. Like the, we have an initiative was called Your Honor Sitting the Bench. It was about enabling a woman to get into the judiciary and getting into the judicial sector. And, the, and they have been advocating for the past 10 years and finally, there was a decision just like last week to allow women to receive this position in October. So inclusion, gender equality, like does not come out of like the same political process that you would think of in the democratic society or in the Western world. It comes from these individual initiatives. That's one example. Another example is a revival of the Me Too campaign that led to a new law against harassment in the country last year and like led to a prosecution of a, a, a very well-known harasser and even a rapist. But in the end of the day, like these things only happens because your government allows it to happen. So the government have a very clear agenda to, they call it Egypt 2030, to achieve gender equality and like to achieve like uh, judicial representation and so on. So they want if you're gonna work on achieving what they want, they will allow it. If you want anything that they do not want, they will not allow it. And this is the line that like people working in Egypt have to work on, that how, how over the line can I go before the government decide to come after me and like prosecute me and so on? And how is the government actually using gender equality 
to again wash its wrongdoings and its human rights abuses by like promoting itself as this uh, reformers of like human rights and like we have a female genital mutilation law and like we have anti-harasser law like well, now we have uh, women judges like look at us we are like doing great but in the end of the day they are doing that for, just to serve their agenda just to make themselves look good not to provide the country with a true gender equality based on like the equality between all humans regardless of whatever they are and that's the key here that the whatever advancement of gender equality will have in a dictatorship it's a government section one and it's just meeting the agenda of the government that is really unfortunate we have uh, certainly made good strides in this country in terms of gender equity and lgbtq equality much more work to be done we are grappling with in the united states post pandemic the ugly impacts of racism. The pandemic really ripped the Band-Aid off the wound that is racism in this country, in this United States. And I'd be interested to hear your perspective about the United States and racism and what you think needs to happen here in America. In America, I think there is problem run deep. Like I, I honestly believe it runs uh, deeper than a lot of places on earth, like which is can really view through its uh, throughout its history. But in the end of the day, there is a good aspect of ripping the bandana off that you actually now see the wound and you know that you need to treat it. And I think in the end of the day, the the good thing that a lot of sectors in the U.S. now moving towards the understanding and realizing that this is actually something that is common in this country. It's not something that it's just limited to one group of people or like limited to this marginalized society. But in the end of the day, I think what the U.S. misses the most is a fundamental change that they do not want to have this fundamental change in anything. The partisan system is not the best one to achieve fundamental change. You can't achieve fundamental change with a federal system where every state, if you cross the line, you are in a different uh, legal framework. So the change needs to come from the top and a federal and a strong federal government needs to take a strong action to, towards uh, racial equality in the country. But as long as they keep uh, dusting the old books and like uh, putting the blames on like this state legislature, like this police force out nowhere and this blah, 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 without actually tackling from the issue from the down and like from its base, it's not going to really going to be effective. And like that's the problem in the end. Thank you. What do you think we should be doing across the world to accelerate the pace of change for our women's movement and our LGBTQ empowerment? What would be, if you were a queen for a day, what would you do to accelerate uh, the pace of change? The thing is that what people don't understand that change doesn't come from an external factors. That change comes from within it. So if you want to, to accelerate change in anywhere in the world, you need to empower the local factors that allow this change to happen. But in the end of the day, in the world we live in, we realize that there is something called geopolitical importance and there is economical ties and there's military cooperation and so on. If we take the example for Egypt, for example, every country on earth knows the bad records of uh, the Egyptian government uh, regarding human rights and LGBT rights and so on. But yet, 
the way they call out the Egyptian government is very shy because of why? Because it's for geopolitical importance. That you can see in the way President Biden treated the Egyptian government in the beginning, people were championing him as the human rights advocate internationally. Even so, like everyone in the Middle East was like, yeah, he's just like same old, same old. The first thing that happened, Gaza happened, our president like interfered, he was the hero. President Biden, thank you, Egypt, such a great government. That's it, like, so in the end of the day, if you wanna like uh, accelerate human rights anywhere, we need to understand the geopolitical system that operate be beyond, the, around, surrounding the human rights system. And we need to understand that we need sometimes to undermine the geopolitical importance of a country or like the military cooperation or the economical trade relations of a country to achieve the human rights uh, that we want to be achieved in this country. But like just uh, shouting it loud and like uh, putting out release statements and so on, it's really like a way to wash the guilt out of our souls for not doing the actual things that need to be done. All right, Nora, I, I, I wanna hear from you. What gives you hope for the future? What gives me hope to the future that after 10 years of like, like Egypt lived in a dictatorship all of its life, but yet there is people who believe in a democratic change. There are still people who fight for it. There are still people who are in jail right now because of it. And it's not only my country, it's all throughout the Middle East. The Syrian civil war is still continuing to this day, people who believe, even though all of the factors are against them. The same in Libya, the same in Jordan, to all of the activists out there in an oppressive regimes, they continue to do their work because they believe that someday they're not gonna see the, the work done. Like they're not gonna see the fruits of their labor, but they are just putting a, a base, a, a, like a brick to build on for future generation to take advantage of whatever base you have put in place and then they can take it from there. But I do not believe that like you should wait for the fruit of your labor. We just need to live with the hope the future generation will eventually see it. All right, my last question. Any advice for budding young activists? First of all, like, don't be afraid. It's a political, if it gets too political, like, yeah, it gets like that. Uh, you're gonna learn how to talk. People will teach you how to talk, how to write, how to do everything, like from A to Z, like, take time for yourself, do a barrier. There is no wrongs in that. Don't overwork yourself. Don't be sad because something you did didn't work out. And in the end of the day, most importantly, care about the security and well-being of yourself because you're not doing anyone favor if you end up in a prison cell or worse, you end up in a bad mental condition that would lead to something that's uh, not good for you or for the community. So in the end of the day, for you as a young activist, we want you because you are our future and like take care of yourself because without you, we can't continue as a movement. Well, thank you, Nora. I think we have come to the end of our time. And I just want to say I am blown away by your leadership and your efforts to secure human rights for folks living in Egypt. And just really am grateful you were willing to spend time with us today. I'm very thankful to be here. And it was very much a pleasure to see you. And if I ever come to your state, I, I will give you a call for sure. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Thank you, Nora. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Changing the Face of Politics podcast series. 
To learn more about the series and NDI's initiative, please go to NDI's website at ndi.org.